From socialservice.sg, I'm Jing Yao. As part of Save Me, Professor Rosie Cheng and her students interviewed almost 3,000 folks in Singapore for the country's first national survey on suicide. We asked her about the suicide stigma index, key findings, as well as relevant policy and practice directions. A content and trigger warning, this episode contains references to suicide. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Rosie Cheng. Right. So before we talk about the Save Me study, could you tell us a little bit about your work as the Principal Lecturer of Statistics at the Singapore Management University? Thank you, Mr. Kwan, for inviting me here. It's a real pleasure to meet you and to talk about Save Me, Project Save Me. I'm Rosie Ching and I work as Principal Lecturer of Statistics at SMU, Singapore Management University. In my job, I... I primarily teach and I teach across the various ranks of students from undergraduates all the way to the postgraduates. I teach statistics, undergrad statistics, as well as statistical techniques at master's level and PhD level. Yeah. And I asked, and I'm interested in the background too, because I know you involved your Statistics X students in this study on the topic of suicide, right? So maybe tell us a bit about what is Statistics X and how were your students involved in this Safe Me project? Statistics X is a name I coined with the X at the end because at SMU we have this, this, this thing called SMUX where X stands for, well, uh, inter- interdisciplinary connections that bridges across different fields of study of students. For example, we have six schools at SMU. We go according to, Is- to the Isabel acronym where I stands for information systems and S for social sciences, A for accountancy, B for business, E for economics, and L for law. Across all these degree fields, uh, I teach a whole mix of them because that is a core subject. And uh, this X, well, it really stands for, well, jokingly, uh, between students and me, it's uh, extra or extraordinary, (laughs) excessive sometimes, it's experiential and experimental because we involve external partners. I seek these external partners myself. And uh, one of them, which was the one this year in 2022, it has been the the SOS, the Samaritans of Singapore. When we asked them if we could serve their social purposes or social missions in any way, it's usually a big yes. And in this case, I was asked by the SOS in 2020, if I could formulate a study, a survey of some kind to assess people's perceptions towards the difficult and taboo subject of suicide in Singapore, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is an example of Statistics X where everything that goes on in a regular statistics course is still there, but it is upped many levels through the inclusion of an industry partner organization. And in my case, I choose the non-profits to work with, those who may not necessarily have the means to gather evidence to support or bolster their mission. Statistics is one of those things that really is, well, many people roll their eyes at, but at the same time, they can't (laughs) do it out. Yep. So um, given that I teach the students statistics and my students are there to learn this subject, uh, what better way? than to carry out an actual fieldwork survey, an original one, together with partner in hand, 
and uh, fanning out across the whole of Singapore to gather data and evidence, and then crunching the data through the statistical know-how that they learn through class to come out with findings and uh, construct from these findings, compose messages, I mean, of meaning to these partners for them to use and to motor their campaigns. For example, if we're talking about suicide, we can, I mean, their main purpose was to assess how people were doing in, especially when they face, when they face crisis, crises of any kind in difficult times, especially with regard to self-harm, uh, thoughts of suicide, encountering suicide either firsthand or, or otherwise in people around us or people we have heard of or read about and whether it is still as negatively viewed or perceived as we always hear it is. Okay, that's, that's the crux of Statistics X. It's a tripartite uh, collaboration between the students, between the partners and faculty like me. And it's really different with the inclusion of an external organization. We can see how they work, they can see how we work, and together we we go forth this way, we forge ahead. And that's a really useful overview, right? Because what you're essentially sharing is that you're taking your students through survey development, data collection, data analysis, and then communicating those findings, not just to the public, but to your partners as well. And, you know, as part of the Save Me project, which we'll link in the show notes, your team interviewed almost 3,000 folks in Singapore in January and February this year, right? So, you know, folks listening to this episode, including me, would be really interested in the research methodology. So I thought we should start with the Suicide Stigma Index, right? I understand from your website that you asked a range of questions with your students. You asked about demographics, knowledge about suicide, perceptions and stigma, support sources, as well as the SSI or the Suicide Stigma Index. So maybe tell us a bit more about the SSI. The SSI is acronym for Suicide Stigma Index. It's something that I created from the list of questions, particularly targeting an individual's perceptions towards suicide or any connotations of suicide or any associations with suicide. These questions were usually about their opinions regarding any positive or negative or neutral feelings about suicide or self-harm. So from this, the SSI was constructed and I made it into a percentile such that the high-end individual's SSI, the more stigmatic he or she would be towards suicide, as in having a negative attitude towards the topic. Yeah, so uh, it goes from zero to 100 in that way. So that would be the suicide stigma index. This was done for every single respondent to the survey. And what are some of the questions in the index? So, for instance, what are some of the questions or items you included in the SSI? Well, the SSI was crafted from a list of questions, which would be, for example, would you perceive a person who shares thoughts of self-harm with you as less competent than if you hadn't heard any such thing from him or her? Got you. Yes. And from what you shared to so someone who scores hundred percent, or that means that he or she or they would have would would have great stigma against suicide. Would that be correct? Yes, yes, that would be right. Yeah. Exactly. So, and yes. what other 
you know, questions or items in addition to this as I, you know, tell us a bit more about the items that you thought were important or significant from the survey you and your students developed. The survey was developed by me and SOS. It was done way before term began because this was in 20, late 2020 when the CEO of SOS reached out in a meeting and asked if I was willing to craft a survey for them. This took time. This took time, definitely, with research into suicide, appropriate questions to ask. And after creating the raw survey, I sent it on to SOS for them to check, as well as for their input and any edits they did, after which I had to seek approval from the Institutional Review Board, IRB, because we were dealing with a terribly taboo topic, one that could easily evoke distress in a respondent, because when we approach someone, we would not know how that person would react to the topic of suicide, whether that person would adverse have any adverse reactions to it, basically. So the IRB is a necessity in this case because we are not just doing any classroom assignment here. We are actually embarking on a nationwide survey of in national importance and consequence. And we need to protect the well-being of every single respondent. This is what IRB is for, to protect any vulnerable parties, to ensure that our protocols are, well, they are in such a manner as to safeguard the well-being of everyone. Uh, not simply respondents, but my students themselves, and well, me included, everyone basically involved. And this takes time, you see, because this takes even more time because it goes to full board review and full board review takes place once a month. And and you you understand now how, how you know, that time just, just flashes by. So by the time I received the full approval, a lot of, well, a lot of processes had already taken place, a lot of forms, documents, questioning, paperwork before approval came in the middle of 2021, by which time I was already involved in yet another project that was a little less sensitive. So the only right timing was the start of 2022. And uh, I'm answering this regarding your what, what you said about the students creating because they did not create the survey. It was created by SOS and me. So I, I gave it to them because we also understand that students are undergraduates here. 90% of them are in their year one. Year one. Uh, I mean, first year of study. And hence, they may not be or have the know-how uh, to create a survey like this. So I had to train them in the proper protocol of surveying somebody. They had to be trained by counsellors as well. Undergo Some of my students undergo the certification in terms of the IRB. And off we went, surveying. And now, could you please enlighten me? I'll remind me as to your original no, question. No, but that's, um, you know, that's, that, was, that was really important also because I feel like a lot of the audience who listen to this podcast are folks in social service agencies. And I think what mm -hmm. you just did was illustrate the process of survey development, right? And many of the social work agencies and social workers work with mm -hmm. similarly sensitive topics related to trauma, abuse, and yours is on suicide, right? And so I'm also wondering with the question, besides the suicide stigma index, what were some of the items or skills that you were interested that SOS and you included in the survey? The questions 
the really interesting one really interesting section was about myths myths regarding suicide for example a person who shares thoughts of self-harm or suicide isn't serious about it and won't do it and uh, a respondent would have to answer whether they thought it was true or false whether he or she thought it was true or false things like that you see from 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 their responses we could, we could gather what people really think about uh, such a person that myths about this i would say the false beliefs about suicide a very significant majority of them believe i'm talking in the present tense that talking about suicide may give somebody the idea this was the most outstanding myth that people believe in singapore and the startling thing is that we found that people with immediate family connected to suicide is the biggest group who believe in this at a very high 70 percent figure across all the connections to suicide because we had five connections and these connections were profile one those who have immediate family who attempted or died by suicide then the profile two was those with relatives who did the same Profile three was friends. I have friends who attempted or died by suicide. And um, profile four was uh, unrelated, unrelated colleagues slash ex-colleagues or casual acquaintances. And lastly, I know nobody or person in this realm. So this were, these were the five profiles. But across these five profiles, every single one has more than 60% believing this myth that talking about suicide will give the uh, idea to somebody. And I, I confess that this was one of my fears before embarking on this project, Save Me. Because when we talk about it, somehow we wonder if we are planting the idea. And hence, when the SOS reached out to me, I was deeply concerned about this, even though they reassured me when I shared with them my fear that there was nothing to worry about because this was untrue. I, of course, uh, checked with other mental health organizations both local and overseas and one and all reassured me that this was a fallacy it was not true i mean when you ask a question and you seek advice you have to believe if most of them say the same thing especially when they are professionals and experts in the field and hence i, I put aside my misgivings and decided that the benefits to conducting this for SOS's mission of raising awareness about having to talk about things rather than sweep them up, sweep them under the carpet. Given the rising trend of suicide in Singapore, and also alluded to by ministers that it's not going to be pretty when the stats come out for, for 2020 and 2021, I decided to go ahead with it. The benefits will outweigh any fears or misgivings that I personally had. Yeah, and, and that's very neat because that's one of the key findings from the study, right? That you identified five profiles of respondents which you share, right? They vary based on, you know, if you're in the first group, they have immediate family who have who attempted to die by suicide. Whereas if you are in the fifth group, you, you don't quite know anyone. So they differ by extent of proximity to someone who they know might have attempted to die by suicide. I was interested in wondering, what you, you talked about the missed part, but another key finding would be what associations did you find between these profiles of respondents and um, the suicide stigma index, right? So what are the relationship between the profiles and the SSI? The profiles and the SSI, 
Well, we found that the nearer the connection to suicide someone has, the less stigmatic his or her perceptions of suicide. This is what we found. So, for example, if I happen to know someone who has a close to me, maybe immediate family or close relative who has died by suicide, the less negative I would view the topic of suicide. This is what we found. Uh, and that those of the general public with no association with suicide view it more negatively, significantly more negatively than those with immediate family or those with close friends. And I want to build on that because a few other key findings include, which I think should worry all, uh, all of us in Singapore, and you've talked about the context of um, increased awareness on mental well-being and mental health in, in Singapore. The few key findings which I think should worry us, I think one is that you found that 8 in 10 respondents believed in stigma associated with suicide. We talked about that in detail. That 1 in 3 is willing to do something to help someone with suicidal thoughts and that many fear making the suicidal person worse, right? Which of these key findings, including some you talked about, surprised you the most when you were analyzing and presenting the findings? I would say many in Singapore have this, maybe it was ingrained in us or growing up, you know, in our culture, in our everyday conversations, that suicide is something that happens, but it's not to be spoken of or in very hushed tones behind closed doors. When I saw what the data revealed, students and I also it served as actual confirmation of a lot of things that we had heard of anecdotally. The SOS had no means of conducting such a survey, at least not quantitatively. So this was the first national survey on suicide. And yeah, it sadly confirmed many of our, of our thoughts that people do view suicide very negatively in Singapore. And I guess what took me by surprise was, firstly, I have more trouble coming up with what surprised me than what did not surprise me because the latter group or what did not surprise me is a, a bigger group, far bigger group than what did surprise me. I would say that what surprised me most is the very high percentage who actually believe that suicide is preventable in Singapore. More than 90%, you know, 92% if I round it off, believe that suicide is preventable. It can be prevented. And yet only a small, much smaller proportion, like one third of this 90% would actually do something to help someone in trouble or at risk of suicide. Because again, this fear comes in whether, because they said, will we actually make that person worse? You see, um, the top most effective and immediate action that they chose was offering their presence and continued support. But a distant second place was encourage professional support. So I think it's the personal reaching out that really trumps professional support or encouraging professional support. But only one in three would do something to help someone, even though a very high proportion believe that we can prevent suicide. It's, it's just it's a kind of a jarring uh, contrast there. And I think 
just learning from what you've said so far, I imagine a lot of it would be because of the persistent myths and misunderstandings associated with, with suicide, which prevents folks from, from actually doing it and from, from being more willing to, to do it. Because I imagine one of your respondents would be like, I want to help someone. I'm one of the ones that I, I might want to help someone, but I'm afraid that I might trigger or I might, you know, worsen the situation of my loved one or friends, right? And so that seems like a pretty important finding and pretty important implication if you're thinking of actually confronting this challenge head on in Singapore. Yes. More than 70% say it's their fear of making the suicidal person worse, their lack of ability to do anything and their lack of knowledge. Knowledge-wise, we found that across all profiles, it's, it's low. They mark themselves as low in knowledge regarding suicide. Yes. All lower than average. Even those with immediate family involved in suicide, 6 in 10 of them say their knowledge level is low. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know this next question is beyond the scope of the study because we're talking about policy, practice, implications. We focus a lot on the worries and all the troubles here, but I'm trying to find some glimmer of hope in your findings as well, right? Because you, your, your key findings do provide some directions of what we could potentially do. So for example, you talk about this. You found that physical face-to-face platforms were preferred by your respondents to share their problems, that they turned to friends to share their problems and they, they valued anonymity as well. So... You know, again, as I said, this is thinking about beyond the study as well. How do you think we can better do as a community from SOS's perspective or us as individuals to you know, improve and, and improve the situation in Singapore? Hmm. We found across all age groups, from the Gen Zs all the way to the baby boomers, the person they will most likely turn to or the means you know, of help they will most likely resort to is a friend, just a friend. And where professional help is concerned, 60% have chosen physical face-to-face for the most comfortable platform to talk about their problems. Second place is text messaging for Gen Z and millennials. But for Gen X and baby boomers, they prefer the telephone or hotline. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, statistically, uh, statistically speaking, text messaging to Gen Z and millennials is what the telephone or hotline is to baby boomers. I understand, yeah, makes sense. Uh, yes, but uh, anonymity-wise, almost 70% would be willing to talk to someone about the problems only if their identity were kept unknown. And this is a common thread across gender, age, race, religion, profession, and educational qualifications. In fact, across races, the Chinese being the majority uh, um, raised in Singapore, uh, 70% is the highest chose anonymous. Uh, And how do we reconcile, right, anonymous with physical face-to-face? This was addressed with SOS in attendance and our patron, who's uh, Minister of State, Ms. Sun Xieling, who was also there at the unveiling of the results. She revealed that uh, upon hearing this, she immediately turned to Mr. Gaspar Tan, the CEO of SOS, to ask him how we could bring those two together. I mean, how do you stay unknown or anonymous while physically present with somebody face-to-face? And what Mr. Tan shared was, it is possible if that person is a complete stranger. So if, if you were here, if you both of us were here, just you and I, and if I were sharing with you my problems, I'll be perfectly at ease if I didn't know you from Adam and, uh, and you were here just to offer me your, your ears. 
and, and maybe uh, you know a wise counsel uh, to my problems that would be the way you no know, physical face to face and yet anonymous at the same time and I'm also wondering about, I mean, again, this is, you know, beyond the scope of the study per se, but about professional services as well, right? I mean, I can share that I go for therapy as well. And then this person I can trust who will keep my, my perspectives and my thoughts and everything that I share with this, my therapist will be confidential, right? So maybe not anonymous, because you no, know, but it would definitely be confidential, right? That anything I share, and if that can be normalized over time, then the burden will not just be on a friend or a colleague or someone close to you to, 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 to hold space for these discussions or perspectives also. Yes, I agree. It is because just last night, I had a meeting with my 2016 students. We had dinner and our first dinner since the pandemic began. So we had not seen each other in two and a half years. And there we were sharing about this because they were interested in my projects, having themselves been through one with me back in their time. And I shared with them about Save Me. And uh, some of them did actually did the survey because I, I myself have my own extensive network of my friends, my family, my students, both past and present. And I get all these graduated students of mine to do my survey. Uh, yes, and I was saying that in this case, we were commenting about anonymity, if one were to seek help professionally through counselling. And they were saying, yes, for example, the counselling centre at SMU is very well, has a very well-lit sign, you know, saying the Mrs. Wong Kok Leong Counselling Mental Wellness Centre or something of that sort. And they said that they would not be seen, you know, dead near that sign ever, even if they needed help. Students have also come to me in the past with their problems, sharing, you know, in distress, absolutely not wanting to be associated with the counselling centre. There's a stigma there. They, they fear going and or being seen there because they might be viewed as, um, well, less than normal. Is this thinking, this prevalent perception, you know, in all our heads that to seek help means something's wrong? But at the same time, as has often been pointed out, when we when we fall ill, we do see a doctor, right? But we are viewed no less just because we see a doctor for the flu. So how is it that when someone is ill with mental issues and sees a doctor for it or a counsellor for it, how then, you know, can we say that that person is less than normal? It is very hard, especially where mental issues are concerned in Singapore. And now there are well, I, I'm sure not now, but in the past there have been, but I only became aware of them recently through my project. Something like Caring for Life, CFL. Caring for Life was set up by this uh, lady who founded Caregivers Alliance, caregiving for people with mental health issues in Singapore, as well as this new one called Caring for Life. I met her during the duration of the project as I was sharing my survey with her. And she shared with me that their goal is to educate any person, any person in the street to such a degree that that person will be able to identify signs of distress, hidden signs of distress or suicide ideation in the people around you. And it's necessary to start with our students so that 
it becomes part of the environment. You know, it's not something abnormal that we're talking or something taboo, or something that's untouchable. You need to normalize it, according to her. And SOS, one or two months later, shared with me their same idea because ultimately all these organizations are in close touch with each other and they have their own different ways of going about it. So SOS is also going ahead with, uh, with this campaign to teach everyone who's willing to be taught about how to, in our everyday interaction with each other, how to identify whether this person may actually be facing something darker than we can see on the surface. You know, we can sense, you know, we are, we are human beings, we have a heart, we can, we have this extra antennae that just need to be sharpened. And if we sharpen them, we can more easily, according to them, more easily be attuned to someone who's facing some mental challenge of some sort and gradually reach out to them. And this will make it yeah, all around healthier for everybody. Yeah. And and I think in, in just your short sharing to that to, to that question, which I think is very consistent with what the survey and study found, is that there's no one approach, right? That that you want to normalize conversations, you want to reduce the stigma associated with suicide and, and, and help seeking services and behaviors. You want to increase more, increase greater professionalization of, of, of treatment and, and psychological access as well. And so it really is speaking to this huge kind of task but can be done by different groups and individuals which I think is really really bent which I think not only would benefit but have benefited from the research and survey findings I think I guess my final kind of question which is methodology related which is a personal curiosity of mine I think you alluded to this briefly is how you went about doing the sampling strategy right because this is Singapore's first national survey on suicide. I'm interested if you could speak a little bit in this final question to the sampling strategy, how you worked with SOS throughout this data collection and analysis process. Because I know you spent, as you documented, 13 months or more working on the project. Your students had like three and a half months of very intense work. So what was that process of sampling like for the project? The process is always through uh, random sampling, firstly. I ensure that all sectors of Singapore are covered. And given my students live across Singapore in many, many postal districts, we were hampered rather by the COVID-19 pandemic. The past projects have been, so we were limited. We couldn't fan out across on streets at MRT stations as much as we wanted to or shopping malls. I had to bear their well, bear, you know, look after the well-being of my students and keep this in mind all the time. Therefore, I allowed online interviews as well. We were, I made it a rule that no recordings would be done to safeguard the privacy of all respondents and that in order to reduce or alleviate or forestall any adverse reactions of respondents, the survey would be op completely optional they would be able to drop out anytime they wished. And anyone who needed help would be directed to me or to the IRB or to SOS because it's a legal obligation to call for help uh, if, if anyone really does uh, evince you know, emotional severe emotional distress. So we did it through Zoom, through the telephone. We only shared the electronic link 
within our trusted networks. The link was not to be shared on any public forum, certainly not through any free-for-all social media board. It was password protected as well. And the data was only accessible by me so that the students would be could safely reassure their respondents that no one was able to assess the data, but the principal investigator, and I was that person, all the data cleaning fell to me. The sampling methods, I repeat, were completely random. However, given that, naturally speaking, my students' uh, networks would be of around or their own age group, which would be the Gen Z or millennials, we faced that perennial obstacle of uh, meeting the population demographics in terms of age. That was the largest hurdle to overcome. And hence, after two weeks, when I saw the tallest bar, the 20 to 30 age group, I placed a ban on that age group in order to allow everyone to focus their attention more on the older people. And they understood this because no age group would like to be underrepresented in any way. I exerted myself greatly in this because I, of course, am the oldest among them. And I got all my senior students in as well as my own family and extended to uh, partake in this and share with their own trusted networks who were over the age of 40 and to follow up with them on their well-being after having done the survey. This was especially needed given the nature and the first time we had ever done this to ensure that uh, the people were okay or feeling at least all right or not bad after doing it. And this opened even more conversations because after you follow up with somebody, hey, are you feeling all right after doing it? I know it was a tough thing to do, but I really appreciate you doing it because it's for Singapore and for the SOS. They will often, I mean, for my, in my own experience, a lot came back saying, I'm, I'm okay. And others even said, it's, I'm feeling a little heavy because it reminded me of a friend who died when we were in school and, 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 and no one really wanted to talk about it, you know, and just closed. And others talked about army days, you know, difficult army days with their colleagues who, who died by suicide and yet others who came out with their own stories. It allowed them to talk and to share about things that, they had, that were buried or had been buried for so long, you know. And yes, it was a very long and time-consuming process, but I found it very, very deeply personal I mean, I went to another level with these people, deeper level that would never have occurred had it not been for this. And at the end, it was always, thank you for doing this. It is very hard. It's very difficult, but it needs to be done. This was their common, the common phrase I heard. This conversation needs to be had. We need to have it, which is at odds, you know, with what I learned from an ex-nominated member of parliament. I, in the process of writing out my uh, results and after the, let me see, after it had been released by corporate communications of SMU to the media, Ms. Anthea Ong uh, reached out to me and she was saying, this is a project of meaning and it has a real purpose. I learned plenty from her. She directed me to many links the Hansard and so on. From there, I read and learned that 
even in 2020, when Ms. Ong, Ms. Antia Ong, asked for data on suicide in schools, the then Minister for Education replied that, and I quote, tabulating and publicizing such data can have other implications, such as heightening suicide risk in vulnerable youths. And, then, and from, then, she, from then on, Ms. Ong added, added, added me to her mental wellness group for action. This fear of suicide contagion is the exact fear that I had before Project Save Me. You know, and it's, it's, it's a huge, I would say almost insuperable obstacle if we allow it to remain by not talking about it. But in order, but as we talk about it, we need to be very sensitive and need, there's a constant need for follow-up from individual to individual. SOS is very stretched. They're doing marvelous work. You know, they are really, they've been the, closest partners who have really exerted themselves the most ever since I began projects of this nature in 2016. The, uh, from top, you know, from the topmost person to the most junior, it's been just fantastic, yeah, amazing to see them, the way they are invested in the well-being of the people who reach out to them through their hotlines. They have care texts, they have text messaging now, it's apart from a hotline, many volunteers. I I sometimes recommend my students to SOS too, especially when I really think they need help and the help can come better from them than I could ever offer, even though I always tell my students, I have my two ears and my open door for you, <laughs> whatever you need. You know, I won't say a word, but you know, I, I'll just be here for you if you ever need me. You know, all you need to do is ask. And they have. Sometimes it goes beyond, and I really think that sometimes where in cases of abuse, let's say domestic abuse or threats of self-harm come in, it's then that I really think the SOS can help in their own, because they are the experts, they have the expertise, they have the means. They are doing wonderful work. But then again, this fear of suicide contagion and this fear of being stigmatized they are things to be worked on and not only at one point in time, like it saved me, but continually, it's a continual work of labor. And, you know, if I may, as a concluding thought as well, I was really excited when you said yes to be interviewed because, you know, I was similarly moved by the work that you've been doing, that you've done with any piece of pioneering work as you're doing right now. It sets the groundwork for future iterations and surveys and work. And I echo, you know, what many have told you, which is the work needs to be done. Conversation needs to be had. To me, it's remarkable because it's showing the potential for research in terms of relating it to not just policy. You talked about policy, but also to public perceptions as well. I, I, I think it's, it might not result in immediate changes, but it sets in motion a lot of things that I think need to happen. And then from my, as a final thing, from my perspective, and learning from you as well, because it's not just research, public and practice, but really also research and education. I completely agree with you when you say statistics is something that someone, some, some folks sometimes shun because you don't understand it, but you've made it in such a way where if I were one of your students, I'll be able to see, hey, I can see statistics in action. I can actually do it myself. Maybe I'm not doing the whole project. I'm doing a piece of it, but I actually see it in action. And I think for 
a lot of aspiring researchers and educators like myself, I think that's the direction we should be headed towards. And I think it's so important that such work continues and, and then is sustained over time also. So with that, I've taken up enough of your time, but I really, really love listening to you and uh, I really appreciate the work you've done so far. Well, it was you who reached out to me, the Quan, and I'm very, very grateful that you took the trouble to ask uh, these questions and for your interest, you know, which led has led to this. I really feel that if we want to present a case um, to serve any social mission, for example, not, there's nothing like numbers, like statistics. People will start to listen. Absent of statistics, you'll just be anecdotal and there's nothing to back what you say back up what you say. For example, I always teach my students about statistical legends, and there are plenty of them, one of whom is Florence Nightingale. Uh, Florence Nightingale was self-taught in statistics. Uh, many know her as just a nurse, you know, because when I ask my students, who is she? And some of them would say, never heard of her, because you know, the younger they get, the less they've heard of such a figure. Uh, the older ones would say, oh yeah, she, wasn't she a nurse? And I would say, for, um, excuse me, she, for your information, she was not simply a nurse. She's the architect of the modern day hospital. And she is, was a self-taught statistician, the first female member of the Royal Statistical Society. She created her own original statistical plots. Her original plot to show the causes of deaths where she served the so helped the soldiers in the barracks hospital overseas in Crimea. Her goal was to show the cause of death because she suspected that the primary cause of death was infection and not killed in war. You see? And her pioneering work in visualizations in her charts, her original chart was the more complicated version of the modern day pie chart. And it, her work swiftly led to the Royal Commission set up by Queen Victoria into the inquiry into the health of the army, you know, and it led to subsequent military hospital reform. Now, had she not taken the trouble to diligently, painstakingly take down the numbers of survivors and deaths in hospitals day and night, apart from her own hospital duties, she would not have succeeded in her endeavor. And she said, what she attributes her success to. She said she never gave or took any excuse. So this is inspiring, you know, not just for the young, like my students, but for all of us in general. I did not want to use my fear as an excuse for dodging um, this project or to avoid this project or to decline this project. If we want change, if we want action, we cannot hide behind excuses. Yeah, off here. And in a similar vein, I, I really believe that the work that you're doing and you have done will similarly inspire more folks to do the same in research and education as well. So that is very much appreciated. Thank you, Prof Cheng, for spending time and thank you very much for your insights. Thank you so much.